This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for April 21st, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Elise Amel joins Julia Rosen to talk about why changing our behavior collectively is so challenging. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from the online news site. And just a quick thank you to Scribby.com for supplying us with free transcripts this month. Scribby.com, audio transcription perfected. 75 cents a minute at 99% accuracy. Best deal on the internet for audio transcription. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story about listening for meteors. In movies that I've seen, meteors are depicted as these fast-moving streaks right in the sky, accompanied by a sizzling noise that ends when it inevitably crashes to earth with a loud booming noise. But that's just special effects. There are actually no recordings of a meteor making noise. Yeah, I was really surprised about that. I know. (laughs) Whether meteors make any noise and how they would actually make a noise is hotly contested. Dave, Okay, why wouldn't we be able to hear a noise of something traveling through the atmosphere? Well, because of the speed of sound and the speed of light, uh, scientists say that you shouldn't hear a meteor if you heard anything for several minutes after you actually saw it burning through the atmosphere. So it's going really fast and the sound just would never catch up and you wouldn't be able to connect those two things. Exactly. They would feel like two completely separate things. But many people do maintain that meteors make a sound at the same time that they see them. And amazingly, as we mentioned, there's just no record of this. So scientists did look into it anyway and asked, how would it make a sound that would be heard at the same time? And the answer is... Radio waves. Radio, radio, yeah, old-fashioned radio. How would meteors generate radio waves? Well, meteors release huge amounts of energy as they disintegrate into the atmosphere. And they also produce low-frequency radio waves that travel at the speed of light. So some scientists have suggested that those radio waves produce the sound that accompanies meteors. So what this new study did was actually try to model this phenomenon. You know, is there a way for meteors to actually make these radio waves in a way that we would actually hear a sound at the same time 
that we saw the meteor crashing to Earth. And what the model shows is that, or what the model suggests anyway, is that as a meteor streaks through Earth's atmosphere, it ionizes the air around it. And basically what that means is it splits it into, splits the air into these heavy, positively charged ions and lighter, negatively charged ions. And the ions actually follow the meteor, whereas the electrons are deflected by Earth's magnetic field. And this it's the separation of positive and negative charges in the meteor's wake that produces a large electric field that drives an electric current. And it's that current that launches the radio waves. Okay, we've got the waves, but here's the trick. We know radio is associated with sound, but you can't hear radio waves. What's what's the next step? Well, we're not actually hearing these waves directly. What's happening is that the waves cause everyday objects, things like fences, hair, and even your glasses to vibrate, which our ears actually pick up as sound, meaning we can actually hear it. Okay, so it's making a local sound, but it's traveling at the speed of light and then making a local sound That's that we right. can hear. That's okay. right. Now, here's something out of left field. They also say that this might be happening with the aurora borealis. Right. The aurora borealis also involves charged particles. And in a sort of a similar phenomenon, what we're seeing with the meteors, these particles could be translated into radio waves. And actually, people have said they've heard clapping when they've seen the aurora. And maybe this might explain that sound. Well, I think we just need to record it. Why hasn't... It's amazing to me, shocking to me, um, that we don't have an audio recording of this. Get on it, Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I looked it up, and I mean, there's a few meteors every night, but I think the size is what's important. So, Mm. you know, the Chelyabinsk meteorite, they say one of those every five years, and often it's nowhere anyone would see it. Uh, Or hear it. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Now we have a story on pigeon culture. We humans obviously build on the knowledge of our ancestors. We metaphorically stand on their shoulders. But how often does this happen in animals? We know that some can learn from each other. You know, non-human primates, chimps, can show each other how to use a tool. But when does it become cumulative culture? Let's talk about pigeons, Dave. (laughs) Why are they a good place to look for this? Well, pigeons are pretty remarkable. Not only do they have rudimentary math skills. They've been shown capable of symbolic communication. Um, But they also are very complex navigators. They use smell, sight, sound, and magnetism to get from place to place. And they, you know, they go on these pretty complicated routes and they're always trying to do the most efficient route, right? Because that's going to save the most energy. That's going to ideally get them there the quickest. And so this is ostensibly something they're always trying to improve upon. Right. And the researchers then based this approach that they use to test this idea of cumulative culture in pigeons on the spaghetti tower experiment that's been done with people. Let's let's just start there. What's what's the spaghetti tower? The spaghetti tower test, not as fun as it sounds, but it does involve spaghetti, actually dried spaghetti. And what basically happens is you've got a couple of people in a room and one is asked to build a tower using raw spaghetti and clay while the other person just looks at them. And then the tower builder leaves and the person that's left behind now has to build a tower from sort of what they've learned from that first person. And what the researchers find is that over time, these as new people come in, the towers get taller and taller, which means they're sort of more structurally stable, which means that the towers are actually getting better over time, which means that this knowledge is getting passed on over time and improved upon. Right, right. So... 
pigeons. How can <laughs> pigeons are not building something? We're obviously going to talk about their pathfinding. So how do they set up an experiment to kind of put the spaghetti tower together with pigeons? <laughs> well, no spaghetti involved here, but the researchers took uh, GPS devices, strapped them on a bunch of pigeons, and then divided the birds into three groups. In one group, the birds had to home by themselves. In the second group, the birds had to fly with the same partner over and over again. And in the third group, the birds were switched up so that they got a sort of a new partner every half dozen flights or so. So that sounds the most like this example where there's an observer. Right. And uh, just like with the spaghetti tower test, the researchers found that the first two groups really didn't improve their path over time. But that third group where you had a bird getting switched out every once in a while actually did improve their path. They actually got closer and closer to what the researchers call a perfect route, sort of that ideal route home. Okay. Is this really cumulative culture <laughs> or is there something more simple going on here? Well, you know, it sort of depends who you ask because some researchers say, yes, this is, this is a great example. And we only thought this could happen in humans. And now we can see it happens in pigeons as well, which probably means it's happening in a whole bunch of other animals. But others say that this is just really kind of a subset of what we consider this sort of cumulative culture that because the birds weren't actually learning a new skill, they were sort of improving on a skill they already knew. It's not quite the same as what we do as humans. Last up, we have a story on why good lions turn bad. Yes. This is an old story, uh, Dating back to 1898. And Dave, you seemed really excited when this was first mentioned. So why don't you just tell us how you first heard about lions that turn on us and yeah, eat I love, people. I love this story. This is uh, this is actually an incident we've written about a few times and actually was immortalized in a movie that came out a few years ago starring Val Kummer <laughs> called The Ghost in the Darkness. But it's basically uh, about two male African lions that killed 35 people over the course of nine months in the Saba region of Kenya. So how can they, how did they dramatize this in a movie? <laughs> well, yeah, I don't remember. I don't think they had CGI lions back then. But I just, it just sort of fascinates me because it's sort of like a, a Jaws tale on land. And so, and it fascinates scientists too, because the scientists have been forever trying to figure out, well, forever, maybe more than a hundred years, trying to figure out why the lions did this. Because lions, for the most part, don't eat people. People are a very small percentage of their diet. Yet for these two lions, 30% of their diet wow. came from people. There's been a lot of speculation over the years about what happened with these lions. And one thought was that they were starving, that they just would eat anything. Now researchers are revisiting the scene of the crime, but in Chicago. So both lions were eventually killed by this uh, British colonel called uh, John Patterson. Their bones have since been stored in a museum, uh, actually the Field Museum in uh, Chicago, Illinois. And what the researchers did, well, what they wanted to test one of the prevailing theories was that the lions was were so hungry that they had sort of become these scavengers that would just sort of eat everything, that they would just not eat the skin, but they would eat the bone. And if the lions were actually doing that, they were so starving, they were basically consuming everything, every part of a person or an animal or whatever, you would notice that in wear marks on their teeth. But when they looked at the teeth of these lions and they sort of compared them to the teeth of other animals that eat bone, they didn't see the same type of wear marks on the teeth of these two lions. But they asked another question, which was, how healthy were these lions' teeth? Right. And while they were looking at the teeth, what they found was they found evidence of dental disease. In fact, one of the lions seemed to have a very painful abscess at the root of one of his canines, which would have made normal hunting, grabbing, suffocating prey impossible. Um, and even the other lion didn't have as much 
uh, dental disease, but seemed to have some injuries, some milder disease that also may have made it a little bit harder for him to hunt in the traditional way. Does that mean a lion in need of dental work is in general <laughs> more dangerous to people? Well, so the question, so that begs the question of what does this have to do with people? And the idea is, first of all, people are sad to say, a lot easier to hunt and kill <laughs> for lions uh, than other kinds of animals. So it may have made easier hunting for them. But also, we have nice, soft flesh, believe it or not. <laughs> and so if you're a, a lion with a very hurdy tooth, just like we might go for jello <laughs> when our teeth are hurting versus like a like a versus a taco, uh, you know, these lions went for people versus maybe a wildebeest. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, sir, we've got a story about a new study in this evolving story about whether young blood can reverse aging effects. And this study shows that some protein that comes from human cord blood actually seems to have anti-aging effects in mice, especially when it comes to their memory and learning functions. Also a story about the amazing naked mole rat. This is a blind animal that has a bunch of remarkable traits, including that doesn't ever seem to get cancer, but it can also live for 18 minutes without oxygen. (laughs) And this new study shows how they do it. Uh, Finally, for Science Insider, we are hot and heavy into our coverage of the March for Science, which is happening this weekend, April 22nd. We will have more than a dozen reporters at more than a dozen locations across the world covering various science marches. We will have live coverage starting Friday night with some of the first marches happening in New Zealand all the way through Saturday night when some of the last marches end in Hawaii. So be sure to check out all that, all the stories, all the live coverage, videos, pictures, and everything else on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. Support for the Science Magazine podcast and the following message come from Wonder Capital. With the new regime in Washington, D.C., the administration is placing vital issues like climate change on the back burner. While the government is no longer actively fighting climate change, Wonder Capital is. With Wonder Capital, individuals can now fight climate change by directly investing in solar energy projects across the U.S., In fact, investors like you financed 40 large-scale solar projects in 2016, offsetting the CO2 emissions from 2.8 million pounds of burned coal. Take action against global climate change by creating a free account at wondercapital.com slash science. That's wonder, W-U-N-D-E-R, capital C-A-P-I-T-A-L, dot com slash science. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. This week's episode is brought to you by Stamps.com. These days, you can get practically everything on demand. 
video, podcast, a car, anything you need. So why are you still going to the post office and dealing with limited hours, limited parking, perhaps a public transit situation when you can get postage on demand with stamps.com? Anything you can do at the post office, you can do right now from your desk with stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or even a package and use your own computer and printer. And unlike at the post office, stamps.com never closes. So you can get postage whenever you need it 24-7. This site is super easy to log into. It's a very straightforward process. And, you know, I don't mail things very often, but if I were a small business that continually had to deal with shipping, I would much rather do it from home. It's much more efficient than having to drive a couple times a week or drive with a big big pile of packages to the post office, park, get in there, buy things, wait in line, all that stuff. You just do it from your home any day of the week, 24-7. So right now, using our code SCIENCEMAG, you can get this special offer, a four-week trial that includes postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in ScienceMag. That's stamps.com, enter code ScienceMag, stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Many of us live with an uncomfortable dissonance when it comes to sustainability. We know that our lifestyles exact a heavy toll on the planet and on future generations, But even so, we drive to work and fly on airplanes and buy disposable products that are destined for landfills. In short, we do things that we know will make the problem worse. It turns out that our psychology is at least partly to blame. Humans are poorly equipped to tackle challenges like climate change, particularly when doing so requires us to go against the cultural grain. So what can we do about it? I'm Julia Rosen. Elise Amel is here to explain why building a more sustainable society starts with understanding our own psyches. Welcome, Elise. Well, thank you, Julia. It's really great to be here. You say that calling something like climate change an environmental problem is a misnomer. It's actually a human behavior problem. Explain why. There are really two pieces to this, and one is that the root cause of most of our environmental crises are a result of our own behavior. We're burning fossil fuels, and that's creating our climate crisis. And Despite knowing this, we've been really slow to respond appropriately. Unfortunately, just repeating that we need to change or providing information like the top 10 things you can do to save the planet or even scaring people about how desperate the situation is really aren't sufficient to motivate us to do things. And in the case of scaring people, it can really backfire. What does research show are some of the psychological barriers that make it hard for us to make sustainable choices? There are really so many behaviors, it's hard to pick just a few, but some cognitive limitations are pretty predictable. When we evolved, we didn't really have to worry about problems that were too far in the future or things that weren't happening right around us. And so now we're not equipped to detect problems that are diffuse and that change slowly or are happening far away from us. And so we're less motivated to respond to them. And then when we do detect information, we process it in a biased way based on how we think about how the world works. We call these worldviews, and they're developed over the course of a lifetime. They're really strong. And so what happens is we develop these belief systems. And then if we get new information that is contrary to that, we tend to just ignore it and look for information that actually supports how we already think about the world. 
What are the costs and benefits of our behavior when it comes to sustainability? Another thing we know is that consequences are really powerful. We tend to avoid things that feel bad and we gravitate toward things that feel good. For instance, our current transportation infrastructure really facilitates driving and personal autos over walking and biking. It's probably because pedestrians and bikers feel unsafe. It's essentially punishing. In contrast, we perceive that using a car gives us freedom to go where we want, whenever we want. That's rewarding. And so driving ends up dominating. Sometimes the problem arises that we don't actually perceive the logical consequences of, for instance, like the convenience in our culture means that we often don't know where our food comes from or where material goods go if we throw them away. And so it's really hard to make good choices under those conditions. And then sometimes while incentives can motivate us, the most persistent changes come when we're intrinsically motivated. This kind of motivation comes from when we feel competent and if we feel free to make choices and if we feel like we belong. And so any kind of new behavior like acting sustainably usually means that we have to do something that's new or difficult. And if we have to feel awkward because it kind of goes against what other people are doing, those are all things that just demotivate us. And how hard is it for individuals to change their behavior if the social and economic systems around them don't change too? It's really incredibly hard to go against both social and other economic type of systems. For instance, if we're trying to work against our big transportation system or the food system, it really requires us to do a lot of extra work. Even conscious intention requires extra energy for us to do. And we tend to want to reserve our effortful thinking for the super, super important things in life. All the little details, if we have to think really hard about them, we usually just avoid it. We're even called cognitive misers because of this. So, you know, when we have to look harder for alternatives or do a bunch of background investigating for each choice, it just becomes overwhelming. Now, socially, we really underestimate how much we're affected by social cues and expectations that are around us. You know, from an evolutionary perspective, we really tended to survive when we were part of groups. And so it's really part of what we are as humans to not want to be rejected. Anytime we're imagining that we might become rejected for doing something different, we tend to avoid that. So there's some really interesting research that's been done to demonstrate how we're impacted by social information. Households receive energy bills that included some normative information about how their neighbors were using energy. And in subsequent months, people who tended to use more energy than others did reduce their usage. But unfortunately, the below average users actually increased their usage. And this is really not that surprising because we all tend to gravitate toward the norm. What was really interesting was that adding a smiley face to the bill for the people who used less basically showing approval for that behavior, inspired the below-average users to stay below average. You write that we need collective action to promote sustainability. How can organizations help, and what does it require from the individuals within them? Informal and formal groups have a lot of power to drive our individual human behavior. And luckily, some of the same drivers that sort of keep us working against sustainability are really the same mechanisms that can support sustainable activities and behaviors, such as norms and policies and and those kinds of things. 
For instance, in many businesses, the purchasing practices of an organization are largely based on how much something costs. And while cost is always going to be a factor, some companies have indicated that it's okay for it to cost a little bit more if it actually is more sustainable in nature. But it's really important to remember that organizations really aren't some abstract actor. They're really comprised of individuals, and each individual makes all kinds of decisions. So for any organizational level change, an individual has to step up and be the one to make the first move. And leading change is not all that easy. It's obviously easier if you're in an official position like being a CEO or a manager, but theoretically anyone can be a leader. Leading towards sustainability really involves recognizing the need for change. In this case, seeing inconsistencies between the status quo and our ecological reality. But they also have to believe that something can be done about it. And they have to have confidence that their contributions matter. And then it also involves individuals overcoming basic social pressure, as well as the additional challenges of being afraid that your job is in jeopardy because you might speak out and do something a little different. At the end of the article, you talk about how resisting the pressure to conform is, quote, nothing less than heroic. How can people overcome our own psychological limitations and summon the courage to speak out? I think there are several key practices that can help build courage. First of all, we should recognize the source of our emotions. When we go against cultural norms, sometimes people shout at us or more subtly, they might give us some odd questioning look. And these social signals really lead to a flight or fight response. You know, our heart rate goes up, we start sweating, we might get a dry mouth and feel negative emotions. And these are all cues to make us try and change what we're doing and avoid the situation. So it's important to recognize these fight or flight responses are really just leftovers from our evolution and that while embarrassment used to cue us to the risks of rejection anymore, we probably don't have the same extreme consequences associated with any particular behavior. So we can actually override these feelings by telling ourselves that being rejected just doesn't matter so much. Social influence becomes even stronger when we have to do public things like speaking up in a group about issues that concern us. There's a new article about what's called pluralistic ignorance, and that's a phenomenon that we tend to underestimate how many people agree with us about controversial issues. And then we fail to speak out if we have an inaccurate belief that many people disagree. Now, regarding climate change, most people agree that it's happening and that human behavior is contributing, but we think that people will disagree with us so we don't speak speak out. And what they found is that people who are aware of how many other people are concerned do tend to speak out. And it seems to be because we don't want to appear incompetent and and lose people's respect. The good news is that pluralistic ignorance can be corrected. Secondly, there's safety in numbers. Standing up by yourself is the hardest thing to do. So we also know that social support is really powerful. So finding some people who are willing to stand up with you or go to a meeting with you can be really helpful to get over this barrier. And and this has really gotten easier with technological innovations such as the internet. And finally, practice makes perfect. There are programs now for kids that help them really effectively develop a thick skin. And they do this by having them practice doing something that they feel is morally right, even if they're facing social pressure. I think we can all benefit from these. Thanks so much for talking with me today, Elise. Thank you, Julia. It's been a pleasure. Elise Amel and colleagues write about the psychology of sustainability in this week's issue of Science. 
And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.